You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Our enemy doesn't tire. Doesn't stop. They're coming. But not for much longer. Game of Thrones prepares for the final whistle. My guests Chiara Romella, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Ben Ryland will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Australia's looming election and the virtues and vices of fixed parliamentary terms, the imminent opening of Istanbul's vast new airport and the revelation that online product reviews might be even more useless than you thought. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Chiara Romella, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Ben Ryland. Welcome all. And we will start in Australia, which is presently bracing itself for a federal election which must take place before May 18th. Australian parliaments are elected in theory for a three-year term, though elections are often called earlier than that when the government of the day believes it has an advantage it can maximise. The fact that Australia's present government has allowed this parliament to run to full term therefore tells you that it knows it's on course for a battering and is therefore running out the clock in the hope of some variety of miraculous deliverance. But should it be up to the government? Uh, ben, my fellow Australian, I will ask first, are, are you basically keen on fixed terms? I, being a, a reasonable man, can see both arguments. Yeah, to be honest, I can see both arguments as well. Uh, broadly speaking, I am in favour of fixed terms. I know that Bill Shorten has made this, the opposition leader in Australia, has made this argument before and believes they are are a very good idea. Whether that means he would introduce fixed terms as Prime Minister, I am uncertain. Uh, But to be honest, it all just comes down to the certainty. People like certainty. Business likes certainty. And uh, I don't think that voters like this idea that the Prime Minister can really drag things out and drag things out and drag things out. We've seen a lot of dragging here in the United Kingdom, and there is to some degree a bit of dragging going on in Australia at the moment as well. As you and I would know, Andrew, the current government, Scott Morris and the Prime Minister, they haven't been doing well. There's been a lot of chaos. And this not knowing of when the election will be is sort of like the final straw that the Prime Minister has that he can pull at any particular moment and spring it on people. And that's when the campaigning starts. But essentially, the flip side of that is that you end up being in campaign mode for a hell of a lot longer than you otherwise would be. Certainty is good, but... As you say, there are two arguments. There are pros and cons. Well, the United Kingdom, the country in which we are broadcasting from, in which we are broadcasting from, that makes no sense at all, but the listeners know what I mean, uh, has found itself trying to have the best of both worlds in recent years and ending up with neither. In theory, it has fixed-term parliaments, uh, or at least has had. This was introduced recently, but as we discovered a couple of years ago, and Theresa May shortly afterwards wished she hadn't, uh, it is actually possible to circumvent that via various parliamentary chicanery. Um, Chiara and Fernando, representing here the peoples of Italy and Brazil, I will come to you first, Chiara. Um, What manner of system obtains where you come from? I understand you've been looking into this. I have, and I must admit that I found it (laughs) slightly difficult, to say the least, to really understand the workings of the Italian parliament. I mean... You're you're not the first, in (laughs) fairness. I... 
I don't even know what fixed term parliaments look like, like you know, look like. I mean, growing up, um, my experience has never been really of remembering a government going on for longer than I don't know a school term. No, I mean, obviously- you, you did you did challenge us before we came on air to see if we could guess how many governments Italy has had since the end of the Second World War, and I am rehashing this conversation partly to illustrate the chaos you're describing, but also because my guess was pretty good. Um, so, what actually is the? It is an extraordinary number because this is seventy-three years we're talking about in which time Italy has had. 65 governments. Wow. That's pretty good going, right? Well, you, you could argue that it's extremely democratic. I mean, you know, everyone in the country is going to get a crack at some point, aren't they? <laughs> um, no, but I, I say that. Um, actually, as you probably will imagine, Berlusconi holds the record for the longest serving uh, prime minister. And in fact, his... 20 roughly years of government uh, were relatively stable compared to the before and after. Um, but the average length of a, an Italian government is about one year, one month and 10 days. And that's, that's barely long enough to figure out how to get an outside line. I mean, you can't, you, you can't, you can't really do any gover- governing in a year, what's, can you? What's really quite interesting is that technically the mandate is for five years. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of like those, that utopian um, finish line <laughs> that I don't know how many people have actually crossed. Um, no, I think... As um, Ben was saying, um, it, this, the, the uncertainty has definitely been felt uh, by Europe, specifically with uh, regards to Italy, and people know that it cannot rely on the government lasting very long, and that definitely hurts the finances of Italy. And if you look at, for example, even the national conversation um, ever since the latest government was put in place, the vast majority of the discussion around the internal politics has got to do with how stable or unstable the coalition currently in government is. That's virtually coming up on headlines every other day. It dominates discourse. And if there was a way of perhaps putting that problem to the side, I think a lot of things in terms of how Italy can go forward would be different. Andrew, I need to point out, because uh, you said there that, uh, what was it, a year isn't very long for a government to be able to function. It is not. Uh, even though in Australia three years you need to a parliament can't sit for more than three years, but as the opposition leader Bill Shorten has pointed out, the average life of a federal government in Australia is actually two and a half years. It's not even three years. And when you consider that, you know, we would look at a country like Australia and say, oh yeah, it's it's pretty well run as far as the government is concerned. It is pretty well run, but two and a half years isn't really that long for a government either, is it? It is not. Uh, Fernando, in in Brazil, how does this work? Well, we have fixed terms. We have a presidential system. At terms every four years. And I have to say, I'm quite a big fan of uh, fixed terms because for me, it's something, it's like the Olympics. It happens every four years. There's a certain <laughs> expectation of it in a way. Uh, but of course, Brazil, I don't think is such a well-run country. And for example, our last five presidents, two of them were impeached. One is in jail. The other one was in jail, but he left just a week ago or so. And the other one, he's, he's fine. He's Fernando Henrique Cardoso. And, you know, so it, as you can see, you know, we also have a few issues here and there but I, I think four, four years are ideal for a term okay well we shall move on uh, from that uh, and look now at Istanbul where a colossal logistical enterprise is underway moving Turkish Airlines entire operation from the city's Ataturk airport to the new Istanbul International it is an extraordinary effort Turkish Airlines proposes to knock off the move in 45 hours 
I don't think I did my house last time in that, that, that amount of time. Uh, moving 10,000 individual items on 707 trucks. In fairness, I had about 706 fewer trucks than that. Uh, before the first Turkish Airlines flight leaves the new airport, bound for Ankara tomorrow afternoon at 1400 local. Turkey has ambitions that the new Istanbul International will become the world's largest and or busiest airport, able to handle 200 million passengers annually. Um, this is basically being discussed here at this point to queue up a, a fabulous, solid local radio gold item in which we all get to discuss our favourite and least favourite airports. Uh, ben, you can go first. All right, least favourite. I really don't like Naples Airport because I spent way too long there the one time uh, because of an airline which will go unmentioned. Uh, I really don't like JFK. I don't no like one Melbourne. Likes JFK. No, JFK's it's a true, jump. It's, true. It's, it's legendary. I don't like Melbourne Airport either, though. Melbourne Airport it's is not a classic, is it? It's ugly. It's really, really ugly. Uh, when they finally get around to building that that rail link to the airport, it that will, will make it happen. easier to get. It's <laughs> happening now. They've started. The hard hats are on, Andrew. I promise it's happening. Um, but no, it's it, it's it's difficult to get to. It's ugly when you get there. Everything's expensive. Everything is hard to find. There are not enough chairs. It's very annoying. Enough negativity. Which one do I like? I quite like Adelaide. Now, I was going surprise. to say exactly that. Adelaide really? is it's a lovely airport. It and is, I, and, and obvious really like, t- you know, obvious joke that enables you to get out of Adelaide. But no, but that, <laughs> but that, 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 that aside, it, it, it's a lovely airport. It's beautiful. It's it vastly really underappreciated yeah. as well. No, it's uh, we should explain to our... Uh, listeners who have not been to Adelaide Airport and actually Adelaide is a perfectly pleasant city it's just that, you know, I'm allowed to make those jokes my, I'm technically half South Australian it's where my dad's from, uh, but the airport it's uh, there's this beautiful wide open space with enormous windows and views of the hills and there's lots of nice places to eat and the Wi-Fi is free and yeah, I, I, I've, I've never, and I've, fl- I've flown in and out of there a lot and it's never been late coming or going, they've never lost my bags, I yeah, it's um. It, it, I have it to say, beautifully, beautifully done. I like it when an airport knows how to capitalise on where it is. And Adelaide, I think, does a good job of that. It makes the most of the fact that there are beautiful views there. Uh, Adelaide has access to some of the best wine in the entire world. Also true. And although I was a little bit unfair to Naples a bit earlier, all right, it's a, it's not a nice airport, but I will say retail-wise, it is quite nice. You can get local wine at Naples Airport, and you can get a lot of the local pastries as well, which, let's face it, is the most important thing when you're in that part of the world. Chiara. Yeah, so I tried to draw up a bit of a list of what my criteria for a good airport or um, are. And I think a good airport needs natural light, high ceilings, lots of seating space and proximity to the city. Now, I think my least favourite airport, and again, it's because we spend so much time in these ones, but it's Milan's Linate. The only good thing that it has going for it is the proximity to the city. Great 20-minute taxi ride. All the same, entering in there feels so claustrophobic it's the lowest ceilings <laughs> it's lower than a flat ceiling it's almost. weird actually i'm now thinking i must have flown out of lonate not less than half a dozen times i can remember literally nothing about it i have nothing at all uh, well it's it's a very cavernous place you have to descend it's so strange because normally in airports when you're departing you you will ascend the stairs to go towards departures but once you go through security in lonate you go down a level, which, you know, helps contribute to this feeling of 
closeness. And then one of my least favorite things about Linate is you go through to your gate and there's a TV blaring out the news in about a four minute cycle that repeats constantly in a loop whilst you're sat there waiting for your flight. So I'm sorry. Maybe it's because I spent too much time there. On the other hand, if I'm going to have to pick the my favorite airport, I'm going to have to tow the monocle line here and and say Singapore. I mean, it's just fantastic. I once spent an entire afternoon there just because I didn't know where to leave my luggage. And I sat down and I was next to the garden and the Wi-Fi was free and the food was delicious and I had Kaya toast. I, I, I spent last Christmas Day in the Singapore <laughs> airport. I did. I mean, you know, not because that was where I wanted to spend Christmas. I was on my way to Australia. But the cactus garden is amazing. There's an outdoor cactus garden on top of an airport. It's brilliant. And there's a butterfly enclosure. I know. And and there's also, like, actually pleasant and not necessarily tacky installations when you go in. You know, you might even actually see something that design-wise is genuinely interesting. Who would have thought? So, yay, yay Changi, then. Uh, Fernando. Well... I was thinking, I think, I'm sure in Brazil we have terrible airports, but one that I have a few experiences is Luton, actually, close to us. I find it dark, depressing. And can you eat there? Probably just an old baguette from Cafe Nero or something. <laughs> I wouldn't like to go there. I would pay extra to go to any other airport. Perhaps not Stansted as well. I'm not a big fan of Stansted. In fact, I think I just like Heathrow. Why do you hate Britain, Fernando? <laughs> no, honestly. I, I mean, Berlin Schoenfeld as well. Not very nice, but I just thought it was great, dull, nothing to do there. But let's talk about the good ones. I've yeah. been stranded in this airport for a day when it was start snowing all over Europe a few years ago. But it was quite nice, actually. It was in Amsterdam, this is Hippo Airport. Schiphol Airport is a well-run airport. Well-run. There's so many things to do there. Some nice shops, you can buy flowers, nice magazine selection, because that's, for me, what makes a good airport, a good newsstand. Without a good newsstand, you're nothing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, one of the things, one of the airport experiences that was most disappointing for me ever in life was Rio de Janeiro. When mm. you go through security, and I normally leave buying the magazines until the very last minute because I want to get the security stuff done and then take my time in a newsstand. There is nowhere to buy anything to read past security at Rio de Janeiro Airport. I agree. It's so depressing because when I say goodbye to my family when I go and visit, besides, you know, crying and everything, then I can't buy magazines. <laughs> just... And that just sets you off again, presumably. <laughs> it's just hell. Um, I, really, I... I really have a lot of time for the airports that give you a free newspaper. And uh, I think that's a really great way to promote the city that you're in. And uh, unfortunately, off the top of my head, I can't remember which cities I have been to that do this, but there are several that do Adelaide this. Adelaide does. Adelaide Ad does. Adelaide is one of those airports it's that bungs you a newspaper as you get on the plane. Because guaranteed, if you walk past a newsstand and it's giving you a proper and actual newspaper, and I mean, this is not something you're going to take advantage of, is it? Because you're not going to be at the airport every day. But it's such a good way of getting to know the, the city the city that you're in and also promoting the fact that this city does actually have a newspaper, which, you know, for a city the size of Adelaide, the fact that it still has a proper daily newspaper, good on them. Uh, I, I was going to nominate for my own choices, best airport and worst airport, the same airport. It, it may have changed uh, since I was last there, because on the one hand, at least God, I hope it has. On the one hand, it was kind of weird and terrifying, but, but also just extremely 
extremely picturesque. And this was uh, Kabul International, which I last flew in or out of in 2003. Um, and it, it was quite an experience because I flew with Ariana Afghan Airlines uh, from Dubai, which was a whole thing in itself. But as you, as you come into Kabul, which is uh, cradled by these absolutely beautiful, beautiful mountains, but these are very high snow-covered mountains immediately surrounding the airport. So, the, the, so there's that. And you just want to make sure that the pilot knows what he's doing. But at that particular point, not an awful lot of tidying up had been done since the Taliban and civil war and stuff. So all the air, all the aircraft that had either crashed at Kabul airport or been blown up on the runway, the wreckage was just all sort of shoveled off to one side of the apron. So as you sort of fly in, there's just piles of wrecked planes everywhere. And the areas between the runways were still roped off because they were worried that they hadn't, they were all mined and nobody had cleared the mines. So that was, there was that. Um, it, 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 but it did give you a real sense of like, wow, I've, I've really arrived somewhere. This is exciting. Um, and flying out, uh, they apologetically explained that all the metal detectors weren't working and weren't broken. So there was no bag searches or security checks. And you were sitting there thinking, well, here of, here of all places we're just taking everyone's word for it are we okay yeah massive relief when that plane landed at dubai i can tell you <laughs> i can imagine i feel like we're this is dinner party uh, conversation and that andrew miller just won the game actually i i i, I do all the best. I, 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 I yeah i i i i I, I've played you all like trout on a line, and, 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 and now I've, I don't know where that metaphor was going. Uh, so we will take a short break. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Chiara Mella, Ben Ryland, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up next, astonishingly, it turns out that there may be unreliable information on the internet. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. That whole break there just veered into a really strange place. But anyway, still with me are Ben Ryland, Chiara Mella and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, a few weeks back, I, me, this is a personal confession, ordered some seed for the bird feeders in my garden from Amazon. Now, I absolutely promise that this intro will pick up speed very shortly. Of the particular brand of bird seed I ordered, there are, as we go to air, no fewer than 121 customer reviews. That number again, 121, ranging from five star to one star. Reviews of bird seed, which is seed which birds eat. Anyway, it turns out that it's not bad enough that at least 121 people have opinions about bird seed, which they are determined to share with us, but that their aggregated wisdom may not be something one can take to the bank, or indeed the bird feeder. Analysis of Amazon reviews by The Guardian has discovered that Amazon routinely bundles reviews of vaguely similar products, potentially creating a false sense of acclaim. Um, Kiara, you first. Have you ever personally written an online review of anything? No, but I'm in one. Excellent. Go on. Well, this is a review, one-star review that my colleague Malcolm <laughs> Tatoglian left of a restaurant in, um, in Milan, actually. 
we went and I definitely misordered. And he felt like, he, he didn't mention me by name, but I'm the anonymous person in a review who had her stomach turned uh, by the experience. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I don't. I don't know why people care about writing reviews. I wondered this about Melcon myself. I don't know where you find the energy and willingness to do that kind of stuff. But obviously, people love giving their opinion to help someone. Sometimes, uh, well, when I say help, for example, my my good friend here, uh, Shreeji News Agents in Chutan Street, he has like a page on Facebook, and you can write reviews. And it's such an excellent new stand. I said, you know what? I'm going to give you a five star. Does it does it does it help though? Ben, I will ask you an obverse, if that is indeed the word of the question. I just asked Kira. Have you ever paid any attention to online reviews? This is what I wanted to bring up, actually, because yes, that's the thing. I haven't written an online review, at least I don't recall doing that. Uh, but I do use them quite routinely. Uh, how else will you know for sure that something is going to be good? Now I'm, I'm talking about things that you don't necessarily know about. I mean, look, the bird seed. You can go and see that at Tesco, for example, presumably, or a pet shop or something like that. Uh, but uh, if for something like a phone cover, if you want a, a, a case for your for your new iPhone and you want to know whether other people have had good experiences with this product, that's when I use the reviews. So in this instance, that is quite annoying to think that maybe various different kinds of, of phone case would be used, uh, would be reviewed, uh, perhaps, uh, as you say, creating that false sense of acclaim. But uh, I do have to wonder about those people that are getting on there and getting excited enough about the birdseed to leave the review <laughs> 121 times. Well, it's, it's not just birdseed. The, the issue, as as the Grauniad's uh, analysis found, is that is that people are reviewing various dubious editions of actual good books and that these are getting bundled with actual reviews of the actual book, uh, which means that the actual dubious translation or bootleg or rip-off of is getting the acclaim that the original should and so forth. Um, shout out at that point to one Claude Balls, it may not be his real name, who has ruined the average review of my still available book. I wouldn't start from here by giving it a one-star review with the review Don't Start. Oh, gosh. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Claude. <laughs> um, I will have to say, though, I do think that we are in, uh, and this is often the argument, are we in uh, an age where we are getting more advanced with the technical technological wonders of the online marketplace? Or are we still in the dark ages? Because... I think that we are still getting used to some of the pitfalls that come with being able to buy things online. I went to Amazon last week and ordered a copy of uh, Gore Vidal's memoirs. And a few days later was delivered a novel by Anne Bronte. And I'm still trying to work out how that was possible. But when I notified Amazon, I was simply refunded my money and that was that was it. I, I They still haven't sent me the right book. I still haven't read Gore Vidal's memoirs. Now, that's not something that would happen is, in the is, old is, days is of the book they, Is the book they sent you better? Uh, to be honest, <laughs> my appetite was so wet for Gore Vidal, I was not ready to jump into Anne Bronte. No offence, Anne. Fernando, have you ever written an online review? Well, just for my friend, but I have to say, when it comes to trusting other people's reviews, culturally, no, because I have my own taste and I don't care if they give one star to some random electropop, which I know I would like. But for example, on Amazon, my last buy was tangerine syrup, because I do like syrups. And, and that was... Sorry, just to be clear, tangerine syrup's not some sort of Brazilian pop prog rock group. This is the <laughs> actual syrup from tangerines. Exactly, where you put okay. some sparkling water and just have it with ice and it's delicious. Sounds quite so, nice. So, a lot of five stars there. A delicious move, tangerine flavor, a refreshing change from boring <laughs> orange cordials. And I said, 
you know what? That's going to be the one I'm going to buy. Because it is hard to find please, good syrup please, around. Please, please tell me somebody left a one-star review of Tangerine. <laughs> actually, no, what, 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 the ones that actually interest me when you sort of read these enormous trails of product reviews, it's not so much the five-star or one-star reviews, which at least <laughs> demonstrate passion of some sort. It's, it's people who people who post a three-star review there was a of Tangerine star. syrup or birdseed. It's a, you know, say, like, yeah, the, the birds seem to quite like it, uh, you know, so good, <laughs> the I guess. Per, the person wrote, uh, the person who apparently was a bit confused with mandarins and tangerines and said it was not very clear with the packaging <laughs> which fruit was it. So, yeah, that was a three star. How many stars would you give the tangerine syrup oh, personally? Five. It's quite delicious, actually. It's, okay. it's Mona. I would recommend anyone to buy it. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think we have learned something there. Uh, we will move on, finally, and finally tonight. Uh, earlier this week, it says here, the cast of Game of Thrones, uh, apparently a television program of some sort, gathered for the premiere of the program's eighth series, which more significantly will also be its last. Game of Thrones has, of course, been an immense critical and commercial hit winning more Emmy Awards than literally any other programme ever, and it will be a daunting act for HBO to follow. Um, This is probably where I should confess that I have never watched so much as a minute of it. I'm aware that it exists, but I am possibly, I'm just hanging this out there right now, possibly not the ideal choice of moderator for the discussion which is about to ensue. Um, Do we have any big fans here at the table, or is this going to be a very awkward last four minutes? Absolutely. I love it. I cannot, I've watched two or three tailor, trailers for it already. I'm waiting <laughs> with trepidation. What I would say, and I've, I came to it quite late, and I watched the entirety of the previous seasons on box set, um, completely binged them, and, and I'm really looking forward to being able to watch an episode at a time. And I miss that from the experience of television and only few shows do that like these days where it's a collective experience. You go home, you watch it, you immediately message your friends afterwards, you talk about it at work the day day after it happens. We talk about TV and films and culture a lot in the office, but... The, the first question is always, oh, have you watched this yet? Have you not watched this yet? And there is a disparity of experience there. But when that happens, you know that people will have watched it. And it just brings people together. And I love that. I, I miss that about television so much. Uh, just on the show itself, though, Chiara, what is it that has kept you coming back to it? Why that show in particular? Oh, it's a wonderful saga of intrigue and power politics. And... It's just, it still manages to surprise you. Uh, and it's a thing that few TV series, I think, still do. It still has amazing plot twists. And there's so many characters, which part the part of me that loves family sagas just adores. And another thing that's really good about it is that people generally do die. Some of your favorite characters will die quite early on in the program. And you just got to get on with it. That, that, that is a bold move. I am one of those insufferable people who came to The Wire about five years after everybody else had seen it and then went around saying, oh, my God, have you seen this? It's amazing. But the, the moment in which they bump off Stringer Bell in The Wire, apologies if anyone who hasn't already seen it, that I've just ruined everything for. But that, I, I do recall genuinely almost gasping at that moment because you think that is a bold move. Andrew, I mean, that is just lesson number one. You don't spoil the series at the Look, same time that you're promoting it. People have seen it by now, and if they haven't, you know, really. <laughs> if, pe- if people are only getting to this after I have, then they're, they're really um, not trying. Um, 
Ben, how influential, though, both culturally and commercially, has Games of Thrones been, or is it going to be? Should we be braced, basically, for an absolute onslaught of not-quite-as-good programs featuring a lot of dragons? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think it's 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 more about the idea of this event television. I think that's what Game of Thrones has really uh, drilled into people. And you saw HBO sort of trying to follow it up a little bit with Westworld, and that it was that was appreciated by a lot of people, but it certainly didn't hit the notes anywhere near as high as Game of Thrones has. And I think HBO and the entertainment world at large at the moment has really come to terms with the fact that uh, Game of Thrones is what we call a phenomenon. It won't be followed for probably decades to come. It is that kind of series that has just affected people in a way that is just so rare. Uh, The interesting thing, though, is that it came along at a time where we had lots of other series that were really, really affecting people in vaguely similar ways as well. You had series like Mad Men that, uh, that attracted such devoted followings and The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad. Uh, whether HBO will try to spin off some of the success uh, from Game of Thrones into a spin-off series like uh, we saw AMC do with Breaking Bad, is that remains to be seen. I, I have a suspicion that that won't be on the cards for, for some time yet. Uh, because if you look at the way AMC reacted with the spin-off Better Call Saul, it's appreciated, but Better Call Saul is not what you, what you would label phenomenon television. Uh, but just uh, on what Kiara said about uh, being able to watch the series uh, and have that collective experience, I am 100% on board with that. All of the series I'm watching now are coming, the episodes are coming out week by week, and I'm finding that being forced to wait and then watch that and then being able to discuss it with everyone straight afterwards is such fun, and anyone out there watching RuPaul's Drag Race will know exactly what I'm talking about. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Chiara Ramella, and Ben Ryland, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando, researched by Nick Manise, our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900, it's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. There's more on the day's menu stories on the daily at 2200 i'll be your host for that as well midori house returns on monday at 1800 london time i'm andrew muller have a great weekend